The following was recorded live as part of Homeschool.com's 2005 Homeschooling Teleconference. To order additional recordings, visit www.homeschool.com or send an email to orders at homeschool.com. So hello everyone, welcome back for Homeschool.com's 2005 Homeschooling Teleconference. It's a homeschooling how-to marathon. And for this next hour, we're going to be speaking with, I like to think of him as the king of unschooling, Mr. <coughs> Pat Ferenga. Uh, Pat uh, worked very closely with uh, author and teacher John Holt. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about John Holt's work, since many of the callers are probably familiar with his work. Uh, he was the pioneer that children could uh, teach themselves, so they didn't just have to sit vacantly in a class all day and have information poured into them. Uh, and uh, Patrick is also the president of the Holt Associates and was the publisher of Growing Without Schooling magazine. So, uh, Pat, welcome, and thank you very much for being with us this hour. You're welcome, Rebecca. Well, let's start out and talk a little bit about um, the word unschooling. Uh, what is unschooling? Well, it actually is a word that John Holt invented um, to use in place of the word homeschooling. He felt that homeschooling gave the wrong connotations about the sort of learning that can take place at home and in our communities. Uh, the sort of learning that he was talking about didn't have to take place at home, and it certainly didn't resemble schooling. So um, what he largely meant by it was simply not to duplicate school in your home and to uh, recognize all the ways that your children learned before they went to school and then continue to build on those. Um, John noted that young children are fearless learners. Um, anyone with a baby knows, you know, just about, you know, everything that they could get their hands on winds up in their mouth. They uh, explore the world using all their senses. They are, are unselfconscious. They're learning to talk and walk. They fall down. They say silly things. And, indeed, we encourage them. There's a lot of research that shows that if parents don't talk baby talk back to kids, they don't learn to talk. But for some reason... We stop doing all this and when they become five or six, and we feel that we have to turn this over to experts, people who've been trained in how to mold our children's minds, and that our children, most of all, don't know how to learn, and they have to be taught all over again. And that was exactly the sort of thing that um, John realized. And he, and he didn't just come to this. I mean, you know, what people fail to, to often know about John Holt was that he was a fifth grade teacher in some of the most exclusive private schools in Boston and Colorado. He had at least 15 years of experience under his belt before he wrote his first book. And, um, you know, he really felt that based, uh, he was a very difficult teacher. He bragged about how tough he used to be. Um, of course, teaching in those sorts of schools, that's the sort of teaching that was rewarded. But he realized that, um, the best classes that he had with kids was when he was talking about things that interested him or them and that they enjoyed what they were doing together. Um, but whenever he came into the class with an agenda, tried to try something new out, had this great idea, suddenly he was a scientist and the kids acted, seemed like laboratory animals. And they wound up um, looking at John with very defensive and evasive strategies, uh, giving him sneaky looks, asking for hints, saying, I don't get it. Oh. And, you know, he actually said, wrote in um, How Children Fail, his first book, he would watch them become stupid before his eyes. Tell us some more, would you please, about John Holt and about his work? Sure. John, um, well, first of all, there's a wonderful bio, um, collection of his letters called A Life Worth Living. It was published by Ohio State University Press in 1991 out of print now, but many libraries have copies of it. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about John's biography and background, strongly recommend getting that book. Um, as, and his book, Never Too Late, which is still in print, is, the subtitle is My Musical Autobiography. And that has a, a lot of details about John's um, youth and, and background, but all from the point of view of music. To get the real, fully rounded story about John, you've got to go to a life worth living. Um, and then on our website, www.holtgws.com, there was a fantastic profile done in Yankee Magazine about John Holt in 1982, I think, by an author named Mel Allen. And uh, he gave us permission to uh, post it up there. So if anyone's interested, 
about that. And, and then he taught in that interview. He talks about you know his parents and so on. But basically, what's, what's John's basic philosophy of education? I know he was considered to be um, a brilliant radical in his time. Yeah, and um, his basic philosophy of education evolved. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about him. Um, when John f- first made these observations that I was talking about um, in his book, How Children Fail, and then in his companion book, How Children Learn, he um, was really pushing for smaller schools, um, trying to individualize learning, and to reduce testing to the minimum. Uh, he felt the only time you should give a test is if you need to help the teacher and the student figure out how to best order tasks and how, how to do things. Not to play gotcha, not to make you feel stupid, but to actually use it to figure something out. It's kind of like, you know, the way a piano teacher or an athletic coach or a karate instructor would use a test. Not to make you feel like, oh, you're the good student, you're the bad student, separate the, you know, the sheep from the lambs and so on. So not um, to grade you, but as a diagnostic tool. Exactly. To, to help you, you know, he wrote a book called Instead of Education, Ways to Help People Do Things Better. He felt that that should be the point of education, to help people learn to do things better. And he, and he felt that if, if anything is like a philosophy that you can trace throughout, because he was a radical in the 60s and he wanted to change the schools. But he gave up on that by, by 1968. He, uh, I just wrote a forward to a, a, a new edition of that book called The Underachieving School that came out in 1968. And in it... He was talking about all these wonderful, wonderful schools and so on, but even then he was, he was thinking, but if these reforms don't work, we, you know, parents should still have the right not to send their kids to school and to figure out other places for them to be. So he was always thinking. That's right. And that was 1968. He's always thinking along these lines. But then after he saw that schools were not going to get smaller, testing was not going to be minimized, that you know, competition for grades and the, and you know and and pushing for the prestige of the school was far more important than forging good human relationships in the classroom. And when he realized that, he didn't get frustrated and damn everybody and become some sort of curmudgeon. Instead, he he, he looked beyond. And said, "Well, what else is out there?" So then he looked at the free school movement and became a very big advocate for the free school and open school movements. And he wrote a couple of books about that. And he became interested in children's rights because then he felt that the problem with the free schools is that the kids still had to go. <laughs> you know, he said, but what if a kid doesn't want to go? What else is there? And he, and he cites, you know, he knew that there were many instances throughout uh, human history where children didn't have to go to school. And places like colonial America, Periclean um, uh, Greece, Elizabethan England, were, you know, these are all cultures that didn't have compulsory school for kids, but had incredible social and cultural accomplishments. And higher literacy rates. <laughs> and higher literacy rates, that's right. And that, and that, by the way, is one of the key insights that John had. Is the more he taught, the more he interfered with the kids' ability to learn. And when you look at how we've taught so many kids, but how little they know and how their common complaint is, you know, I teach, but they don't learn. You gotta wonder, well, why, why don't we try, stop, stop this high pressure teaching and try some other strategies? So one of his books then is, um, How Children Fail. Mm-hmm. So in his opinion, how do children fail? Why do they fail? Because they get completely defensive about learning. What was natural, what I was saying earlier about how fearless a young kid is when they're learning to talk and how they don't, you know, aren't self-conscious about making mistakes, suddenly becomes a real big issue in the classroom. In fact, John, when he, when he started to realize this, and again, it was, you know, the thing I love about the man is the more you read about him, the more you see how he learned from his experience. His last book was called Learning All the Time, and this is certainly true of him. He revised How Children Fail in 1983. And rather than cut out all the stuff he disagreed with that he wrote in 1964, he instead drew a line down the page to indicate that this is the 1983 elderly John Holt talking about the, the young, well, the middle-aged whippersnapper of the 60s who thought it was such a hot shot. And he actually says things like, you know, I, I thought this was a great idea back then, but it really wasn't. In my work with homeschoolers, I've learned that the more you leave a child alone, the, you know, eventually they would figure this stuff out, or actually they figure out better ways of doing it. And he gives all these examples. And so he himself served as a model for, for learning all the time. 
And you know, he tried to reduce the fear that is present in the classroom, in which we've ratcheted up to the point now. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's just, just incredible the amount of medical and psychological interventions that we have for our children in the grammar schools now, you know, compared to the 60s, even the 70s. So, uh, homeschooling is um, kind of hard to grasp the idea of it. And um, how would you compare unschooling with some of the other homeschooling styles and methods? Well, I would say unschooling is not exclusive of any method. Um, what it does, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I, I remember Kathy Cohen and I getting in um, a debate about this. It was a really good discussion, actually, many years ago at a conference. Because I couldn't understand why eclectic homeschoolers, you know, feel that they're different than unschoolers. Because to me, that that is the nature of unschooling. I mean, you know, if your child has an interest in Latin or classical literature, pick up the the well-trained mind and see what she recommends. You know, go go to you know Mortimer Adler's idea program and find out what the great books are that he thinks kids should be reading. But the point is not to assume that every child will have an interest in Latin or want to learn algebra or how to mix fractions in sixth grade or learn about ancient Egypt in fifth grade. I mean, these are all just, you know, assumptions that we have. And, you know, when you unschool, you, you free up yourself as well as your child to explore what interests them now and then see the connections, you know, that they forge between the material in their lives. Give you an example. My my youngest daughter Audrey started taking karate lessons five years ago from a, a wonderful guy uh, who's Greek, uh, Jim Moradis. Jim doesn't speak Japanese, but he knew the, the the terminology. Audrey became fascinated with Japanese. Um, as a result, we found a Japanese tutor. For the last two years, she's been studying the Japanese language. Now, studying Japanese is not part of any public school program that I know of. You know, and um, she did it uh, every Wednesday for two hours, and uh, and then she also did karate twice a week on top of that. Got very interested in Japanese culture, Japanese food, sushi, the whole nine yards. Following that, which I had no interest in, my wife, you know, but we all facilitated that and went with that, and it's just been a wonderful experience. She'll probably take a community college course in Japanese in this fall. We were just talking about that uh, this afternoon. But that's the sort of thing that um, you can do with unschooling um, because you're not sitting there saying, well, I just spent $1,000 on this curriculum, and it says I should really be teaching them, you know, grammar. Um, whereas, you know, a homes- an unschooler would, you know, again, if they have a question and they're really hot to try it on learning grammar, um, there's wonderful books, um, you know, eat shoots and leaves and stuff like that that, <laughs> that you can use. But... The way I know most unschoolers to, to learn grammar is through reading and writing. And, you know, you act as an editor and correct their writing, and they learn that way. Do um, unschoolers use um, curriculum? Um, well, for instance, the state of Massachusetts, I have to present a plan, which I guess you could call a curriculum, at the beginning of the year to the school. But we don't lock ourselves into it. We say uh-huh. things like, we expect to cover, we plan to cover. <laughs> In addition to this, we will also be exploring, <laughs> you know, using all these nice open-ended phrases, because we don't want to lock ourselves in. Um, and this is not cheating. I've had, you know, some, some parents, you know, when I've spoken, say, oh, that's cheating. <laughs> you know, like, no, I mean, if you, if your kid went to the Sudbury Valley School or the Albany Free School, well, the Albany Free School, one of the founders, Chris McCalliano, wrote a wonderful book called Making It Up As We Go Along. It's what they do in that school. <laughs> you know, that's what you can do with homeschooling. So for unschoolers, you're using, you're using, um, textbooks and DVDs, educational DVDs and online courses, but you're not dictating what the child is going to do. You're following their interests, and you're facilitating their schedule and their learning? That's right. I mean, it's and it's going to vary from family to family. I know some, some people get all bent out of shape. Because like You say like the Colfax family, and they say, oh, well, there you go. I mean, you know, they were very bookish. Their kids went to Harvard and Yale and became doctors and lawyers. Not all of them, but most of them. And, you know, but as David and Mickey are the first ones to point out, they are very bookish people, <laughs> so naturally their their children would be that way. But you know, if you're if you're living out in um, the middle of Idaho and you don't and and you know you're you're far more interested in nature or um, 
you know, the, the opportunities that exist out there, uh, 4-H opportunities or, or whatever, community theater. I mean, it could be any number of things. And that's where, you know, where you, you, you go. And, that, and I think that's what's upsetting to a lot of people is that unschooling doesn't look the same from family to family or even from state to state because it's very regional, very local-based, and you can't, you know, predict um, where things are going to go. If I if I could have written in my curriculum, my daughter's going to take karate, and this will lead to an interest in Japanese, and we book the lessons and stuff. You know, I mean, most people think I was crazy. <laughs> we you know, I just can't the, predict that. I get the impression, Pat, that really unschooling is more of a philosophy than it is a homeschooling style. And it's a trust in the children that they're going to have a natural, voracious um, desire to learn, mm-hmm. and that you're then going to find the resources that are going to help them achieve their own goals and quench that hunger for learning. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I also say it's it's a philosophy, but it's also an attitude. Um, because I know like some some people like, just don't even want to be part of it. They, they hate the word unschooling because it's a label, and they don't want to be labeled. Right. <laughs> you know? It has a, an implied negativity to it as well. Right. Of course, that's what John Hope was saying, wasn't he? That that don't do um, school at home. Don't bring the school into your homeschooling. Instead, you can invent something unique just for your children, your family. Absolutely. When he revised How Children Fail and How Children Learn, I forget which book it was that he wrote this in, but one of them he said he really kind of regrets that so many people have read his book and decided to homeschool because so many of them seem to take what what they think are good ideas of what he was doing in the classroom and reproduce them at home. And his point was he had to do this tortured version of homeschooling in the classroom. <laughs> but you don't need to when you're home. <laughs> and he really encouraged, he loved finding out you know, people who discovered different things, different ways of doing things, kids who you know, invented stuff or were late readers and then eventually became voracious readers. That's a very common unschooling story, particularly for boys. Boys are very often late readers. When you don't force someone to learn to read by third grade, most of them naturally learn to read anyway, uh, as long as there's no physical issue with their eyes. What is a, a typical unschooler's day like? Oh, or is gosh. there any <laughs> typical day? There is no typical it's like day. Asking what the typical homeschooler's day is like, it's just it's all over the place. That's right, and and you know, and, and there seems to be like this this desire that if we could only like pinpoint it, you know, then we can somehow like grade it or or um, or or, so, or reward it in some way. That's a very schoolish way of looking at it, you know, because, um, you know, I mean, many unschoolers have, have adopted the live and learn as their uh, motto. And, um, you know, John had the phrase learning all the time. I mean, it really is a difference of in your perception about how children learn. And I would put it this way. In school, they view learning as a very scarce, very difficult commodity that has to be properly managed. Whereas unschoolers view learning as an abundant resource, as the birthright of every human. Birds fly, fish swim, humans are made to learn. You know, the world is not our classroom. That's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is the world is our birthright. This is how we learn, by acting in the world. The minute you put, you, you view the world as a classroom, you, you've, you've, rem- you stepped away from an unschooling philosophy. And even though a lot, a lot of unschoolers use that phrase, I've even seen T-shirts that way. But you know, and, and instead of education, John, John actually you know writes about this you know, and, and says that you know that, to him that that would that that would be as bad as you know turning the world into a classroom would be like turning it into a, an insane asylum because it pigeonholes uh, it too much, it limits it too much. That's right, and and it, and it gives control. To whoever's in charge of the classroom, <laughs> instead of saying, you know, I mean, fish swim in the water, birds fly in the air, humans learn in the world. Now, in re- in relaxed homeschooling and in eclectic homeschooling, uh, usually it is still the parent, usually the mother, who is kind of establishing the schedule for the day and is going out and finding resources for the children. Mm-hmm. Now, in unschooling, is it the child who is uh, determining the schedule for the day? Well, you know, again, it's going to vary from family to family. I mean, I know some families like to to um, to say that, um, oh, the child is in control, and it really certainly gets a rise out of a lot of people, particularly grandparents. <laughs> you know, how can you let your child be in control? But I think what they what really happens is it's 
you know, it, it's more of a negotiation between the parties. What do you want to do today? What's your schedule like? Here's my schedule. I can take you to so-and-so's house, but I've got to do this first. You know, you work things out. And then certainly it depends on the child. Um, some kids really like to have, I mean, and this is, this is one of the ironies, uh, in the, the 24 years we published, uh, Growing Without Schooling, there, there would periodically be letters where, you know, you have a mom or a dad who's saying, you know, I'm really relaxed. I'm not very comfortable with all the schedule stuff, but my son or daughter loves schedules. You know, my, they, they really need to know. And it's funny, I've got three, three girls and my middle daughter is that way. She looks at her calendar the day, be, the night before she goes to bed and has to know exactly what's going to happen the next day. Otherwise, she's in a panic and she just, you know, isn't. My other two are much more easygoing. So every every child is different and there's um, different ways of going about it. But I think most unschoolers, you know, find um, that they facilitate. You know, they're not. You know, they think certainly they suggest things. I mean, you know, it's not like you know the child is the almighty arbiter of everything. I mean, you're in a family. Um, it's much more democratic. In fact, I, I've, I've, some people would even say it's more like a benign, uh, benevolent dictatorship, you know, where the parents are, are very tolerant but then have, have certain limits. And then, of course, you've got some families that, that take it completely the other extreme, where, yeah, the kids, the kids are complete equals with us, um, sort of following the A.S. Neal Summerhill model to um, uh, a whole other level. Um, and I've seen it all work. The last thing I think that I want to do as a speaker or a promoter of unschooling is to make anybody feel self-conscious. I mean, if they if they personally feel like, oh, this isn't working, that's good. You've got to look at that. But I've seen unschooling work for parents whose children become concert musicians. I, I know a whole lot. In fact, this conference I'm putting on, Learning in Our Own Way conference, I've got a whole panel about classical music and uh, homeschooling. And that's like, you know, we've got an 11-year-old cellist, um, a 15-year-old singer, um, and these kids' parents are not musically inclined. In fact, the cellist, I was talking to his mother yesterday, she was saying that she really wished he didn't want to pursue this with such passion, because, you know, she's got to lug this kid from one lesson to another, four or five hours a day, <laughs> you know? But they do, because that's where their child's strengths and interests lie. And a lot of homeschooling families uh, unschool their younger children particularly. Because yes. if, especially if a child hasn't been to school, once they go to school, they kind of expect that someone else is going to teach them that they can't learn on their own. Mm-hmm. But when you have the younger children, they're just naturally learning to crawl, learning to eat, learning to write. Mm-hmm. They want to do what they see everybody else around them doing. And, and you know, it's funny. Um, I've heard over the years the opposite uh, two opposite stories from unschoolers, and I think they're both valid. That's the funny thing. I can entertain these opposing uh, ideas. One is you allow your children as much freedom, just what you said, as much freedom to learn as possible when they're young, and then as they get older, you clamp down a little bit more and more, you know, so that they get used to the way you know holding down jobs and the way the world is going to be. Then the opposite, I've heard, where parents say, I want, I want to make sure that my son or daughter has all the skills, reading, writing, calculation, you know, basic math, I want all that under their belt. Then once they get that, then I want them to go out and be an apprentice and, you know, and be a docent and work in a museum and all these things. You know, so it really depends. You know, I mean, every, every family has certain expectations of, of themselves and their kids. Are unschoolers going on to college? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's really interesting to me how, um, again, you know, you would think with this, the loosey-goosey idea that a lot of uh, people have about unschooling that no one would go to college. No one would choose to do anything difficult. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, homeschool, uh, unschoolers in particular have been looking at all sorts of um, opportunities. Uh, for instance, Brown University um, has t- accepted, I think, 25 uns- well homeschoolers in the past couple of years. And I know that on our grown homeschoolers panel at, at this conference I'm doing in, in August, I just got a, I, I didn't even know this, this woman, Janine Turner, just said, look, I'm getting my PhD in computer science from Brown. I was unschooled all my life. <laughs> you know, can I be on the panel? You know, she means and, by I was unschooled all my life, what she means is that she did not follow a rigid schedule. Exactly. Right through high school, right until she got accepted to Brown. Um, she just learned what she wanted to learn. and Unless she set the rigid schedule for herself. Which, is, as, as I'm indicating, happens. You know, yeah. it, it really can. We're interviewing uh, Grace Llewellyn this Thursday. Oh, great. Uh, and she's talking about uh, help your team design their own curriculum. 
Uh, Grace uh, wrote a book called Teenage Liberation Handbook, as you know, mm-hmm. which is about uh, these real lives, uh, these teens who don't go to school, and all the incredible things that they do. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I'm really looking forward to reading the, the revised real lives. Um, I, I know a couple of those uh, young adults, well, they're not so young anymore. <laughs> but one of them is married to a, another unschooler, uh, Peter Kowalki and May. Um, but, you know, when they wrote their books, uh, their, their initial chapters in real lives are only like 15 and 16. So it's been very interesting. In fact, Peter did a, a video called Grown Without Schooling, where he followed um, a number of teens who wrote in real lives and, and people that he knew to see what they're now doing as adults. What are they doing as adults? I mean, are they, are they going out in, in the world? Are they doing okay? They're doing fantastic. Um, you know, to, just, just off the top of my head, um, in, grown, in, in that movie, uh, Grown Without Schooling, uh, Jamie Smith, uh, she's a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. Um, let's see. Uh, one of my, Aaron Roberts is a, is a marketing director for a major computer company. Um, and, and her story is interesting. Because um, she started off, and when she wrote her chapter in Real Lives, it was all about horses. And everything she needed to learn, she learned by working in a stable. And sure enough, you know, in the movie, she makes that connection between her work as a marketing director for a computing company and her work working in the stable when she was 12. Um, one of my favorite stories um, doesn't involve someone going to college. That's uh, 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 Britt Barker is her name. And when she was 16, she wound up working... Uh, wanting to work as a naturalist. And she, through the group Earthwatch, I think it's called, she got an apprenticeship tagging sea lions in the Farallon Islands out there in California. And so she'd never been on an airplane. She'd never been outside of, I think it's Millersburg, Ohio, is where she, she's from. And, you know, she went out there, landed in San Francisco, had to take a helicopter to the island, spent six months um, on the island, flew back to Millersburg, well, I guess three months, flew back for Christmas and went back to the island. And at the end of the year, she was wondering what she should do. And, you know, here she is at 16 or 17, trying to figure out what she wants to do. And as she, she talked it over with her parents, and she writes about it. it was, she had a lovely book called Letters Home, where she, she was talking about all this. Um, she, she actually uh, said, you know, I'm 16, and I'm out on this island tagging seals with a bunch of graduate students who are doing this, you know, in order to earn their Ph.D., and they're telling me if I want to do this, I now have to go to four years of college and then start graduate school so then I can wind up back on this island tagging uh-huh. elephant seals. <laughs> She's like, gee, been there, done that. What do I really like about this experience? And she thought and she thought, and then what she realized she enjoyed most was flying. And I don't know if this is still true today, but when I last, when I last had contact with Britain in the, ni- in the, the mid-1990s, she was a bush pilot in Alaska. And that's what she became. And that's what she became. she became a bush pilot. <laughs> right. Because that's, you know, out of that experience. You know, so you don't really know, you know, where these things are going to go. I mean, you know, when pe- people say, I'm going to go to college, and it's like, for what? Most of them really don't know. <laughs> That's true. That's just a natural next step. Right. I'm 18. That's why I'm going. <laughs> well, you know, it used to be that the word unschooling is what people meant when they when they thought of as homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, a homeschooling has uh, so many different definitions. There's classical homeschooling, Christian mm-hmm. homeschooling, Waldorf, Montessori, mm-hmm. eclectic, and, mm-hmm. and unschooling. So it's so I mean, it's so hard for people to kind of understand what what unschooling is. For example, mm-hmm. eclectic homeschooling, you can picture it. Okay, I'm going to probably decide the schedule for my children, and I'm going to select the materials for them, and mm-hmm. we're going to either use a very structured day or not a very structured day. Mm-hmm. And uh, classical homeschooling, you can picture it. But uh, keep helping us, if you would, Pat, sure. picturing what unschooling is like, what an unschooling day is. Okay. Well, first I think of all... I think it appeals to a lot of people, but fears come up. Sure. Because it's... Uh, well, are the children just going to fool around all day, and mm-hmm. is that okay? And will mm-hmm. they learn something if they fool around all day? Is it okay if I uh, insist that they do math every day? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, uh, or uh, do all unschoolers are they involved out in the world? In other words, are they not home at all? Are they uh, doing internships and and uh, are they you know working out in the real world all the time and not spending time doing book work? Mm-hmm. So keep this defining it for us, if sure. you could. Well, when pressed, the definition of unschooling I give is unschooling means allowing your children as much freedom to explore and learn from the world 
as you can comfortably bear. Now, I know that definition upsets radical unschoolers and, you know, I mean, there's pagan unschoolers. I mean, you know, you go on the Internet, you find all these subgroups of unschoolers. And, you know, some will say, no, 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 it's like letting your children do whatever they want to do. And it's like, well, if that's all it is, if, if all it means is trust children, because, I mean, that's what John Holt said. <laughs> he says, all I'm saying in, the, in my books is trust children. But the reason he had to write ten books is because that's so hard to do. <laughs> and there's many, many different schedules, many different ways of learning all these things. Um, and so unschooling allows you the, the time to see what it is your child is interested in. Um, for instance, I would say that you, know, you, you stand back and you act more like an anthropologist. You know. Hello? I don't know why we lost the line there. That was weird. Do you have a call waiting? Actually, I do on the line. (laughs) If if you have to, when we take a question, you can go out and then push star 70 to disable it. Okay. Okay. But go ahead. Keep talking because it was very good. And then when we we go out and take a question, you can go out, push star 70, and then come back in and I'll repeat the question. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, you want to be more like an anthropologist and, and, you know, look at what your children are doing. Play with them. See what they're reading. Don't su- you know, I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't suggest things. You use the example of, well, I, I, I want to make sure that my kids do math every day. I know unschoolers who do that. I know unschoolers who would say that that is absolutely horrible and, a, and an incredible violation of John Holt. But, you know, the fact is John Holt, you know, sold math textbooks in his catalog, you know. I mean, he said when a kid needs to learn, he needs something good to learn from. But you know, when my children were young, I used to set up the house kind of in a station approach where I would have the microscope out, and I would have the piano open so that the keys were there, and I would put interesting books out on the table. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's kind of an unschooling approach as well. It is, but the key, and I think this is where, where it really upsets a lot of people, but to me it's, it's important. The key is the kids can say no. It's uh. not that they have to do, they have to go to one of those stations. And that, and that becomes, you know, and this becomes one of the thorny issues because now you gotta deal with the relationships. Yeah. In fact, isn't that what all the homeschooling experts agree on is that there should, when there's homeschooling, there should be no tears. Yeah. Well, I, I would like to think that, but I've seen, you know, <laughs> I've seen products like the electric rod in some catalogs, uh, <laughs> makes you wonder. <laughs> really? I have not seen that. Oh, yeah. Um, there was, I signed a petition against it, actually. It was being really? advertised. And the idea is that if your child didn't do their math, you would zap them? That's right. Exactly. You know, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, primitive, but it's there. You know? Okay. So, so what clarifies unschooling is that you have it as structured as you'd like, as your as your comfort is. But that the I, what, what makes it different from the other homeschooling methods is that the child can say no. That's right. You know it, it, that that you know everything is negotiable. You know, and that you know, and through that conversation, through building up the relationship of trust and understanding between the parent and the child, or the tutor and the child, or you know, because I mean, unschoolers don't just live in a vacuum. Their kids take music lessons. Their kids play on sports teams. Their kids do magic tournaments and play video games. You know, I mean, there is a lot of that social collaborative learning. Um, and I think that's something that gets lost in a lot of the other methods, is the idea of collaborative learning, where, you know, with unschooling, it's like, you know, if, if you agree that children are social creatures, you want to provide as many social opportunities as you can for them. And the, chair, the parent is more of a facilitator than an instructor. Exactly, exactly. In fact, sometimes it's a lot easier. I, I, you know, when I consult with some parents, you know, it, it becomes a, a real issue. And it's like, look, why don't you not teach your child and find somebody else? Why sacrifice your relationship with your child on the altar of education? I've seen this happen. You know, time and again, parents and children get in, like, these, these horrible, bitter arguments oh, over okay. algebra. Yes. And, you know, it's like, you know, you can always find another algebra textbook or another algebra teacher. You're not going to find another child, or, you know, son or daughter or parent, you know. But don't, don't go, don't, don't take the nuclear option that far, you know. Damage the relationship on the education, on the altar of education. That's right. Well, Pat, we're going to get some great questions. Do you mind if we open up the call and chat with some of our uh, listeners? Please do. Thank you. And audience, uh, there are a lot of people on the call right now, several hundred, but we have not had a problem with noise at all. If you would, 
please make sure that your phone is muted out. Either use the mute button on your phone or uh, star six. And then uh, if you have a question, when you have a question, push star six, ask your question, and then I'll repeat it so that everyone can hear it. So here we go. Excellent. Hello, caller. So a uh, great discussion we're having here with Pat Faranga. We're talking about homeschooling in general and unschooling specifically. Do you have a comment or a question you'd like? I have a question. Yes, we can hear you very well. Go ahead. Okay. I'd like to ask, if you live in a state uh, where you're required to have four and a half hours of 180 days each year and it has to cover, this, you know, the... Um, Subjects such as language arts and related mm-hmm. four or five. Well, how do you can you incorporate unschooling into that? Oh, absolutely. Pat, um, excuse me. Let me repeat this question, please. Make okay. sure everybody hears it because it's such an excellent question. Uh, the question is: uh, All the states have different homeschooling laws, and she lives in a state that requires her to spend four and a half hours a day and 180 days a year, and to do certain subjects every day. How do you home, uh, unschool in that environment? Well, the first thing you should do, well, for, the first thing you should realize is that some states, like my, my home state of Massachusetts, requires you to keep even more track of, you know, what your kids do each year than four hours a day. Um, and, and there's a lot of unschoolers here in Massachusetts, and it's where, where it got started with John Holt. Um, and the thing is, you got to take the attitude that what I'm doing is going to fit into the curriculum later rather than the other way around in unschooling you say what do you want to learn how are we going to help you learn it let's let, let, let's figure this out and instead of you know buying the curriculum saying today it says you're going to learn how to multiply mixed fractions and then sit down and you know try and crack that nut together the um the, the way you account for it for school officials is you, you know you got to keep some sort of records um, for some people they've got great memories they just need to keep little slips of paper and a folder about what their kids did each day and then they they can uh, go back and um, I forget her name but I think it was um, Terry Ensley wrote an article called After the Fact Curriculum and that's what you do you 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 take all the, these bits of paper all the the um, documents that your children have created or stories that they've read. You keep a list of the books that they've taken out of the library. You talk to your spouse about the things that they do so that you can remember things. If you're not a writer, if you're not a journal writer, or you're not a list maker, talk into a tape recorder. Make videotape. Anything that will jog your memory at the end of the year, at the end of the semester, when you've got to talk or write or report in some way to the school officials. And then you, here's where the after-the-fact part comes in. You look at, like, um, the World Book Encyclopedia will give you for free. It's on the Internet, worldbook.com. Typical course of study, K through 12. And you can see what is expected of, like, let's say if your kid's in second grade, of a second grader, if they're in 11th grade, of an 11th grader. And then you can see what your kids have done and fit that in. And then you'll also see what they haven't done and what the school expects. And then you're given, you know, the you have the option of Sitting down, having this serious conversation with your child about, you know, do you want to study this? It's required by by the state, or do you want to get it get to it later? The scope and sequence of your homeschooling program is yours. It's you know, it, you're not in a public school, so you don't have to be in a certain page of a certain book on a certain day. And if you're not, at the end of the year, you simply point out that you know our homeschool our unschooling plan. Um, led us to study rocks, and rocks led to trees, and the next thing you know, we spent the whole year doing naturalist studies. So, you know, algebra and, um, and basic math uh, were, were covered, but not thoroughly. And, you know, we will remediate that next year, over the summer, we're going to take a course, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do it. I mean, people get all uptight and forget that in school, even with that rigid schedule that they have, they don't, not every kid covers everything at the end of the year. That's what summer school's for. That's why inexpensive school districts they have private tutors for kids after school and through the summer and through the holidays. You can catch up later. I found as an unschooler that some of the most important times for helping my kids learn, particularly when they were young, like ages, I'd say, 5 to 10, was before they were going to bed, when we were reading stories to them. 
some of the most incredible conversations would occur at those moments. And that's not school hours by any stretch of imagination. But when I went back and, and my wife and I talked about this and remember those conversations, oh my gosh, it's just un- unbelievably rich learning opportunities. So you just have to be aware of, as an unschooler, of all the learning that is taking place. And it could be overwhelming, which is why I'm not saying that, that you should write down, you know, run around like, you know, Charles Dickens and write every, every little thing down that your children are doing. But just try to remember at the end of the day or the end of the week, make, you know, when you go to the library, just write down a few of the books that they've checked out. So the, don't, don't forget to count movies. If they watch movies, particularly historic, uh, movies or, or movies, uh, you know, teaching type movies, um, right, that all counts. You know, I was amazed and my middle daughter went to high school this year and I was amazed at how often they would show a movie in school and, and that counts, you know, it counts for homeschoolers too and unschoolers in particular. And audiobooks count too. Oh, all that stuff. Audiobooks, internet, websites, um, you know. Where educational software. Yeah, I mean, the whole multiple intelligences thing. I mean, I, I wanted to talk about that, but, you know, there's so many different ways. I mean, we all, we all, we always get hung up on books, you know, and, and stuff, but, you know, kids, kids learn musically. I just learned about, um, a program, uh, called Hip Hop Math, where kids learn, uh, all, you know, basic math calculation by, by learning hip hop songs and dances. Um, there, there's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful kinesthetic way to learn. I mean, for a child that can't sit still, that's a great way for them to learn the multiplication table. My son learned multiplication by jumping on the trampoline. There you go. <laughs> you know, there's so many different ways of doing it. Once we break out of the idea that you got to sit at a desk and read a book in order to, to be um, educated, the world is your oyster after that. Of course, the media tends to portray homeschooling as children sitting around the table because that's an easy photo to take. You got it. And I can't tell you in the 24 years that I've been in this business how many times I've read the opening line of a newspaper. The school bus drove past the Ferenga family's house, but their child wasn't on it. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Because that's easier for people to understand. Right. Well, Pat, thank you. That was an excellent question and an excellent answer. Let's open it up. I think we have room for one more question. Thank you. Next question, please. Hi. Hi. I was wondering, um, how do you know that your children are going to get everything? How do you know that they're going to be able to pass state tests and things like that by um, this particular philosophy of learning? Mm -hmm. Pat, let me repeat that, because this question is for um, every homeschooling family, regardless of what style of philosophy. The fear is, how do we know that our children are learning what they're supposed to be learning, that they're getting everything, that we're not leaving any huge gaps, Mm -hmm. that they're going to be able to pass the test, that they're going to be able to go out into the world and succeed in the way that we we want them to? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I think we have to realize is that there's an awful lot of anxiety behind that question. There's an awful lot of insecurity, and we all have this. I have this myself, you know. Is my my daughter going to, you know, succeed? Um, you know, is she going to be okay if she decides to go to college? Especially um, at the beginning, too, when you may have family members who haven't, you know, seen you homeschooling for 10 years and know that it works, who are right. you're, you're wrecking their grandkids. Right. But this is where I think John Holt has an awful lot to, to offer to us. Um, because, you know, he was one of the first people, and he was saying this from the 60s on, that you, even if we became telepaths, we still wouldn't know exactly what's going on in somebody's mind. That, you know, there is no window that shows in the side of a kid's head that says, oh, look how, how much learning I did today. I love that when a father comes home and says to the parents, what, what did you learn today? <laughs> you know, as if every day is gonna, you know, you know, just sort of fill up the meter. But, um, we, we really need to relax about this because even in the best schools, they cannot guarantee. You know, take a deep breath. There is no such thing as educational malpractice. In your state of California, um, I wrote about this in Teach Your Own, and, uh, and I was just amplifying comments John made in the original version of Teach Your Own. Um, a gentleman tried to sue, uh, I believe it was San Francisco uh, Public Schools, because his son graduated high school and he learned that his son couldn't even read his diploma. And so he wanted to sue them. How could you pass this kid along and so on? And the court threw the case out saying that there's no such thing as educational malpractice. What may work for one will not work for another, and the schools cannot be held accountable for that. And that's why, you know, you've got failures in private schools. I mean, yeah, you could pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to put your kid in a prep school, but there's no guarantee. 
that's one of the huge advantages of homeschooling, of course, is that we're so involved in their education, we're going to have a better idea of what they're learning and what they need to know than if we if they were in classroom all day. Thank you. You've just you know you've just segued into the next point of that, and that's and that is and that's it. So what can you do? Well, to relieve your anxiety, you know, if it if it helps, look at those different curricular models, and they're all over the place. You know, here it is, the 21st century, and we're just trying to. Uh, yeah, you know, and they're trying to standardize education. You know, saying, uh, "Oh, everyone in fifth grade has to learn this, and everyone in ninth grade has to learn that." And you know, it's been tried and failed in the past, and it's being tried and failing now because just because they passed the test. And again, John wrote this in his very first book. The only difference between a good student and a bad student is the good student is very careful not to forget what they studied until after the test. <laughs> And plus, remember, too, that grade-level expectations are really very arbitrary. In other words, a, a Catholic school has different fifth-grade expectations than does a Waldorf school mm-hmm. or a public school or a private school. You know, Waldorf schools, the children are not even expected to learn how to read until second grade. Right. So I, I comfort parents, too. I think if they're going to send their children back into school or think that their child might want to go into school, then um, then play ball, find mm-hmm. out what the grade-level expectations are for that school and make sure that they're prepared for that particular school. That's exactly right. You know, if your kid is going to take an SAT and wants to go to college and they need to take an SAT, you owe it to them to run through some SATs with them. But they, okay. As an unschooler in particular, they probably never had a standardized test. That's right. Prepare them. That's right. And that's what it boils down to. What, you know, if you follow the unschooling philosophy, I think eventually you, you realize that what you're doing is encouraging and nurturing your children's uh, innate abilities to learn and that this will hold them in good stead throughout their lives. What if they encounter a situation where they don't know something? They will learn it. If, as John Holt noted, and, and I've seen this borne out in research and in my own experience over the years, you feel that you're stupid because of what's happened to you in school. You feel incompetent. You feel scared and defensive about trying something new. Um, you're not going to be learning all the time. You're not, you're not going to, you know, you're, you're not going to go out there, but you may have passed all your tests. According to the schools, you are well-rounded. But, you know, I mean, the whole idea, too, of that, you know, by, by following a certain curriculum makes you well-rounded. I don't, you know, it, it just it just bothers me. Who could show you who's well-rounded? I mean, a lot of the professors and experiences that I've had in school and the higher levels of education, the more specialized someone becomes, the less well-rounded they are. All they could talk about is, uh, you know, their specialty. You know? I find great um, philosophy, uh, comfort to just the phrase you use, trust the child. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're going to make a mistake, my goodness, let's let our mistake be that we trusted our children. That's right. That's right. You know, there's nothing that we can't work, you know, th- life is full of second chances. John Holt wrote a book called Never Too Late about learning to play the cello when he was 50. I've read that book. I love that. So, yeah, and, and you know, and that was another adventure in learning, you know, and, 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 and again, using himself as, a, as an example that, you know, we learn all the time. You know, he was not Yo-Yo Ma. I heard that. I heard him play. <laughs> he wasn't that good. But he loved to play. He was in string quartets and community orchestras. And, and you know, and that's what learning is about. I mean, so so often we, we feel like, oh, but if I just let my child play now, you know, they won't, they won't turn into anything. Well, there's a wonderful book written in the early 80s about homeschooling called Better Than School by Nancy Wallace. And in it, she talked about how she let her son, Ishmael, play with toy soldiers for hours on end, and he had this incredible fascination with um, Roman uh, history. And so he studied all the different formations that they were doing. He put his plastic soldiers in these formations. And then he also developed a strong interest in the piano. And she swears that his interest, which stuck with him for many years, of studying Roman <laughs> legions and the whole structure behind that led to his interest in composition. That you know, he won a cash prize. I think when he was twelve or thirteen, writing an opera in New York State. Um, and neither parent was musically inclined. By the way, they just happened to have a piano in the house that they they purchased. The previous owners left the piano there. So um, you know, and her un- letting him have this unfettered play seemed to feed his interest and in, in knowledge of how to compose. That's wonderful. Well, Pat, we're out of time, but I would you please tell us about some of the resources at your website, because I know you have some um, terrific material and books there that can help people who are interested in unschooling and this whole um, trust-the-child approach. Well, um, 
I, I really recommend um, you know www.holtgws.com to learn more about John Holt, uh, to read some back issues of Growing Without Schooling, and to uh, find some resources. I miss uh, Growing Without Schooling. Oh, so I do I. <laughs> I just loved it. And um, then uh, my other website, www.learninginourownway.com, um, has a tremendous amount of resources linked to the speakers and presenters at the conference I'm putting on in August. And, um, for instance, for those of you who are interested in multiple intelligences and how do you work with someone's learning style, how do you know what a learning style is, how do you work with a kid whose learning style is different than your teaching style? This is a real issue for a lot of unschoolers in particular. You know, you may be bookish, your kid may not be. You know, your kid may want structure, you may not be. Uh, how do you how do you negotiate that? Well, we have Dr. Thomas Armstrong uh, talking about that, and there's a bunch of oh, resources on the website. Yeah, um, you know, his, his book, The Myth of the ADD Child, is going to be doing a workshop about that, about non-drug interventions that, you know, to help kids with ADD and so on. Um, you know, we have John Delegato talking about, you know, how not to make the mistakes that schools make <laughs> in, in your home, you know, uh, John has come up with the title, Weapons of Mass Instruction, <laughs> for that talk. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and then we have... www.holtgws.com and learning in their own way. Our own way. Learning in our own way.com. That's right. And what else do you have? Um, what, what I think might interest, because we didn't talk a lot about teen homeschooling and unschooling, although, you know, certainly Grace is going to cover that with you. But what I find interesting is there's a number of parents who's, Teens were never homeschooled, but who are rebelling or just flailing in, at the high school level. And um, I've been hearing this for many years. So I've got two people, one from Vancouver, Matt Hearn, uh, British Columbia, and another one from a friend of mine here in Massachusetts, Ken Danford, who runs North Star. Uh, and both of these are teen learning centers. And what I find interesting is about 60% of the population of both these learning centers, the parents don't consider themselves homeschoolers, but they have no place else put their kids so they're really happy that these places exist yeah. and the kids exist and, and this is one of these, these great ways that I think homeschooling and unschooling doesn't get recognized because it gets lost in the politics and it gets lost in the tax credits and all that other stuff but you know sometimes kids need places besides home and school sometimes neither one is the right place for a kid at that Especially certain time of their life and so it's really important that, you know, that we publicize that there are these other places. Well, Pat, thank you very, very much for your time today. This is just a terrific, informative interview. I know that our, our listeners have been taking pages of notes. Uh, let's open up the call, and listeners, go ahead and unmute your phone, star six, and that way you can, um, can thank and say goodbye to our guest, Pat Ferenga. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. You're welcome. Pat, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you so much. You're I'm most welcome. A new unschooler, and I just I'm glad that the movement is there. So thanks. You're most welcome. Well, if this is this ends our homeschooling marathon for today, and then please join us tomorrow again at eleven o'clock. We're going to talk with <laughs> Cynthia Kersey about uh, helping women achieve goals, about goal setting, and uh, especially for women. So, Pat, thank you again. I always You're enjoy right. speaking with you. I get so much out of it. Same here, Rebecca. I enjoy our conversations, too. Wonderful. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Same here. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye, Bye. everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.